Zephaniah 3 says that God delights over his children in salvation. Um, what an awesome song for God's children to sing. Um, I can barely ever sing those last few um, verses. Um, starts out so big and so broad, um, speaking of the wonder of our God, and it comes so narrow and so close. Um, God is so big, but he's so personal all at the same time. Um, it's really awesome. Uh, it's just an awesome song uh, that's going to really, uh, it really fits in with what we're going to talk about here in the beginning part of our message. Um, uh, but I do want to ask you first to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Um, we began a new study last week um, and introduced uh, to, uh, introduction to Mark um, around the good news that Jesus uh, came on the scene and began preaching. Uh, the time is fulfilled, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand or it's near. It's drawing closer than ever before. It's here to stay. The doors are open. He said, repent and believe that this is the new reality that you've all been invited to come into, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 through 45, and read how Jesus begins his ministry, doing what Jesus was always so known to do. Then they went out into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the regions of Galilee. Now as soon as they come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately... The fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak, because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a in the, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing... You can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And strictly he warned him and sent him away at once. He said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went and out and began proclaiming, been to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. He was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. 
Jesus goes from a nobody to being the somebody that everybody wanted to know and meet and, and experience in a very short while. Um, but, but I want to go back to that song that we sing um, before we dive into what this text is speaking to us. I believe this all kind of uh, bookends together very nicely. The song that we sing, it begins with the focus on our universe, how it was created as a masterpiece by our matchless creator. And if y'all know me, I love just the, 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 the heavens and, and space and all the wonders that we can see and that through technology and through telescopes and through the internet, we've gotten access to see all the amazing things that God has created beyond this planet. Um, my first love and what I really uh, thought I would be doing with my life was, was studying physics and study astronomy and seeing what I could discover about the universe. But I'm left on this side just being a spectator like most people, right? And thank God uh, NASA and, and, so, and, and a lot of uh, uh, forms out there allow us to kind of get a glimpse of all the wonders of the heavens and beyond. Uh, but, but everything is so beautiful. Everything is so perfect. It's all in place and it all seems at peace. Our God is wonderful. He is holy. He is brilliant. He is bright. He created a universe that would always emanate his glory and transfer his light from creation to creature. And when God started with that first star, when he started with that first star, he had a purpose in mind and it's hard to believe he had a single planet in mind. When you consider the galaxies and wonders in space, it all leaves us speechless and it leaves us in awe. And all the more because when we consider all that God breathed into existence, it, it seems to all serve as a mere backdrop, a mere canvas for observation for one single planet. I mean, there are billions of galaxies in our universe. There are billions on top of trillions of planets in our universe Science has discovered that there is an overwhelming majority of these planets uh, that, 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 that could not sustain life, that there's no way that anybody could ever drop into and set an environment up that, that, they, that life could be sustained. Um, but there are a few planets in the universe that science and, and, and technology and, and, and astronomy have de deemed and, and decided that they could sustain life if life were to somehow um, travel there. Uh, but for a planet to sustain life, it has to be in what we call a galactic habitable zone, or easier to understand, a Goldilocks zone. And the reason why we talk about Goldilocks, the reason why they use that term is because much like when Goldilocks went to the first house, the porridge was too hot. The second house, it was too cold. But then she found a porridge that was just right. And NASA calls these zones Goldilocks zones because they're these areas around the star where the temperature is just right for water to exist and obviously for life to be sustained. Now, researchers have discovered that there are many, many, many planets out there that may exist in these zones, but there's a lot more factors that go into, the, into sustaining life and, and water being uh, present. A lot of factors don't add up for any of those planets except just one. In the midst of the sea of trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, there is one planet where, as Goldilocks would say, the conditions are just right. And that's a little planet in the solar system called Earth. We call it home, of course. In the solar system, there is a Goldilocks zone along the orbital path um, about 37 million miles wide, um, or in, in NASA talk, about 0.99 astronomical units to 1.5 astronomical units. And Earth sits just on the edge. Now, this picture really doesn't do it justice. In fact, Earth sits just on the edge of the, of the too hot line, that we're just in the right place for life to be sustained, for you and I to know what we know. Now, it's pretty amazing to think that our planet is literally 
Our planet is literally on the edge of its seat in the galaxy, in the universe, perfectly positioned by our Creator, perfectly positioned by God to observe all that He has made. And I think that's pretty marvelous. It's incredible. It's stunning. You know, science and astronomy marvels how fortuitous these numbers and metrics work out. But we know there's no luck involved, right? Uh, We stand in awe of our God and His handiwork. Yet in this amazing universe, on this perfectly positioned planet, What may be even more remarkable in all of creation, what may be even more remarkable is that all of creation at its core and by nature is wired to glorify God and reflect His power and wonder. Every creature in all of creation is wired to worship God except us. We're not wired to do this by nature. God made people with a free will. And even as fallen creatures, we still have a choice. It's core to our design. It's core to the image of the one who made us. God made it this perfect place. He put people here and told them to manage it well, to enjoy the paradise. He said, I'm not going to make you do anything. I've placed you in a perfect spot. Why wouldn't they seize the opportunity? But we know the story of humanity begins with these perfect people made in God's image and given a free will And yet things don't go so perfect, do they? When God was doing all this, something behind the scenes in heaven happened. Darkness entered the universe and tempted the first man and woman to use their free will to rebel against their Creator. And here's what's so interesting. Even if you're a non-believer, you have to consider this. There's something so special and unique about people. Maybe it's the image of who we reflect. There's something that's special and unique about people when compared to the rest of creation and creatures. When people rebelled against their Creator, the whole universe was knocked off its axis. While the universe still praises and glorifies God, it along with us are all off-center. Not just a little bit, but a whole lot. We're all fallen. We're all broken. Everything is. Darkness has infiltrated every level of creation, yet it has not overwhelmed the light of God. Every light in the universe reminds us that. God's patience towards us reminds us that. Because He could have, at any time, eliminate darkness. God could at any time do away with all of darkness, all of evil, all of sin. But He relents, lest His wrath eliminate any that may have even the slightest of darkness in them, like us. Yes, God allows creation to persist, broken as it may be, dark as it may be, because He refuses to give up on His choice creation, people. So he has given us a redemption plan. He's given us a way of salvation. This plan, this way, is a man, is a person named Jesus that entered the earth 2,000 years ago. He stepped onto the pages of history, born and raised, observing the earth as one of us. And when the time was right, he began proclaiming that there was hope for this fallen world. The kingdom of God was drawing near to open the eyes of everyone and offer everyone access. Never more than today and in these circumstances do we need to hear this good news. As our world's brokenness has been highlighted and punctuated, we know that no matter how much we've dressed up this planet, it's not our forever home. And the kingdoms that rule and reign aren't capable of protecting and providing for us the way we need. Much less when this life life ends. We need a greater kingdom to rule over us. We need better promises to rely on. And the good news of Jesus is that we have a kingdom. We have those promises. The Gospel of Mark 
Chapter 1, verse 15 tells us that God's kingdom isn't coming soon. It's already come. Yes, there's a literal heaven, and and yes, there's going to be a literal transition from this fallen earth to a restored paradise one day. But Mark's gospel tells us that we don't have to wait to the end of this life or the next phase of creation to experience life in God's kingdom, His rule and His reign. We can experience Him. We can be close to Him. He can be close to us here and now alongside and with authority over all brokenness and all of sin. God is with us. Right here, right now. He has been for 2,000 years. This is the theme and the focus of our gatherings as we build toward Easter. This is the theme and the focus of the Gospel of Mark. This is the theme and focus and the essence and the emphasis of our faith. This is what Christianity is all about. That Jesus, God's Word in heaven, came to be God's Son on earth. He introduced this brand new reality to us all. God alongside and with authority over all of brokenness and all of sin. In spite of the bad, God is with us. His kingdom isn't a location or a place. It's a reality that we can experience through a relationship with Jesus. That's what Jesus has been inviting the world to ever since he came to earth. His kingdom moved in. The king has moved in. And never again does anybody have to wonder or worry if you're close to God or if God is far away because Jesus is here to stay alongside and with authority over all that works against us. See, if we change the way we're seeing the world, if we repent and believe the good news, trusting in Jesus we realize that God is not far at all. This is the first and foremost change God wants to make in every one of our lives. To put in perspective what we see around us, whether you feel close or not, you can know that God is near. He is never far away. We can say goodbye to seasons of I feel close or I feel far, the ups and the downs, the the here and now Because the truth is, the secret isn't something you have to do or someone you have to become or something you've got to overcome. Proximity to God has nothing to do with where we are or what you've done. It has everything to do with what God has done and who God is. Everything that needs to happen for anybody to get close to God has already happened. God is not far from right where you are. Even if, even if that place and that state is less than ideal. For a lot of us, things are never like, are not like we would like them to be. They're not as ideal as we would hope them to be. We had dreams that didn't come true. We had plans that fell apart. And we are where we are right now, whether we made those decisions or someone made those decisions for us. Maybe where you are right now, it seems as if God could not be close to you or you could not be close to God. But what if the good news of Jesus is that Jesus can step alongside you wherever you are, whatever you've been through? Mark's gospel is really the story of Jesus as told by Peter. In this introduction, he gives us assurance that Jesus has left an impact on the planet, one that has not ended and will not end. He is here. He is always near. Anyone who turns toward him and trusts in him can step into a much larger universe, get a glimpse of what's going on beyond what we may initially see. Because isn't it true? Sometimes... What we have the clearest view of isn't good or glorious at all. What's often painfully obvious is all of the bad and brokenness about our world. We read Mark 1, 21 through 45, and we see Jesus come alongside. 
So much brokenness. Demon-possessed, sick and afflicted, we see him also exercise authority over that brokenness. Now, this section of Mark highlights just how dark the world was that Jesus entered into and compared to how it was meant to be. In the first section, we find that Jesus amazes people with his teaching, but also he's confronted by a man who was possessed by a demon. Now, this, of course, sparks a lot of questions and a lot of conversations. Uh, there are no sp- such possessions like this in the Old Testament. Um, but there are plenty of stories of, of brokenness and sin. In, in the teachings of Paul and the rest of the New Testament, there are li- zero instructions or pointers given to the church and its leaders about how to cast out demons or how to exercise, suggesting that this wasn't going to be an issue that would be pressing for beyond this early day. In the teachings that we read, in the stories that we read, though, we still know the enemy wrecks havoc against the church. He has and he does, but through this literal means, we don't have any teachings or insight if it's like what Jesus faced. But we do know, possessions or not, the enemy in this fallen world continues to lead people down dark paths and bring people into captivity. But the question is, why do we read about so many demon possessions in the Gospels? I mean, you can turn the page in Mark, and on every page, there's one. You're going to read a story about a man possessed by a demon or a woman possessed by a demon. We read them in Matthew and Mark and Luke, or Matthew, Mark, and John. Why would they... Why are there so many in the Gospels, and why aren't there any today? Or are there still possessions today? But I want you to consider this. God had become flesh and was walking on earth for the first and only time in history. So it's no surprise that Satan would try to imitate and counter that. This was a brand new, brand new reality, that God had become a person and was walking on the planet, right? So it's no surprise that Satan would want to imitate and counter that with everything that he had. He did, and he was no match at all for Jesus and for God in the flesh. As Jesus demonstrated time and time again, just as he cast out demons, he'd come to do an even greater work for all. And more on that in a minute. The people had never seen anything like this. Literally, this cosmic confrontation in front of them. It's no wonder it caused so much stir. They were amazed by all of this, especially by Jesus' ability to cast the demon out. But there's something even more impressive going on I want to clue you into. That Jesus didn't destroy the demon when he could have speaks of God's grace much more than we may realize. Because isn't it true that as the demon asked him, did you come to destroy us? Don't you think that Jesus could have destroyed that demon and not simply cast it out for it to go find somebody else? I think that's a pretty good question to ask. The demons taunt Jesus because they know what he's doing. But do you know what he was doing? They taunt and tempt him just like Satan did in the wilderness previously because they knew his mission. See, Jesus could have destroyed these demons and every demon. He could have destroyed all of evil and all of sin. But you know what that would have done? It would have taken out every one of us with it because any evil any sin would have had to go as well. And God wasn't up, God, Jesus didn't come to do that. Because while fallen, we're still chosen. And while broken to God, we're still beautiful. The whole creation is. See, the demons know what Jesus is up to. He hadn't come to enact revenge on all the earth. He had come to redeem it. Redemption would require patience, something we have to understand lest we lose hope in difficult seasons. See, redemption requires patience and grace. 
Redemption requires patience and grace because when dealing with brokenness, there's a fine line between saving and destroying. You, you see, the demons knew. The demons knew that Jesus hadn't come to eliminate evil, but simply save us from being eliminated by evil. See, they would have loved him to destroy them because their goal was to destroy us. See, God had come to dwell alongside evil, to release those in its chains, to save us from judgment. Of course, there would be a day when all evil would be done away with, but he wanted to save us first so that we wouldn't have to be done away with too. I'm going to pivot to the other side of the coin. The rest of this chapter shows Jesus confronted by not demons, but by diseases. Peter's mother-in-law, a town full of sick people, afflicted people. Here's what these stories don't highlight and they don't emphasize. The promise of these stories isn't that God is going to remove any and all sickness from any and all of us. Jesus does heal Peter's mother-in-law, but he doesn't heal all mother-in-laws. And I hope that he does for you. My mother-in-law's been sick here lately, so I hope Kelly's feeling better. He doesn't heal every woman in the town. He just heals Peter's mom, Peter's mother-in-law. He does heal many from the town, but he doesn't heal everyone from the town. He does cast out many demons, but he doesn't cast out every demon. Verse 33 says all of the town came to him, but verse 34 says he only healed many of the town. Now, I'm not underscoring God's ability to heal, but I want to stress there's something bigger going on here, I think even more encouraging. In all these stories, Jesus isn't walking away from the sick, afflicted, and diseased, or possessed. He's walking towards, he's dwelling alongside of. He's making a clear statement. No matter how much the world continues to sink into sin, he's going to wade into the deepest end to be there for every one of us. Whether it's his will to free and heal or rescue every case, that's up to him. He has a good will. He has a good plan. We can trust him, not because he gives us whatever we want, but because he comes to us wherever we are, even if it's not that good. The text stresses that Jesus, in verse 35 through 39, he says, hey, we've got to continue to preach the good news because God is wanting to spread this message. God is coming near to everyone, and I've got to continue to spread this to those that haven't heard it yet. The healings and the miracles, they're just pictures of what God could do for everyone within their hearts, no matter their condition. See, the purpose and point of the, uh, uh, and the takeaway from these stories is that Jesus has 100% authority over all sickness and disease. So, if he doesn't change our status, it means he just wants to change us or change others with it. If God doesn't heal or change every situation, he's not admitting defeat against brokenness. He's just exercising authority over it in a different way. See, so often we get so discouraged that if God doesn't answer our prayer like he did somebody else, that we feel like something, we've done something wrong or we're not good enough. That is what God wants to free us from. Yes, God is able to do anything that he wants, including keep us in the situation. 
He's going to exercise his authority over it in a different way. Now, the chapter ends with Jesus being approached by a leper. Now, we know that lepers in the ancient world were enigmas to society. If one entered a scene, they would have to give attention and have to give everybody an opportunity to leave and get away from them because being in the vicinity of a leper was considered a contagious thing. Being, in, being anywhere near a leper was a dangerous thing. But the text tells us that this leper came to him and begged him. And of course, I'm, I'm sure as he was begging Jesus to come toward him, everyone was running away from them, right? Everyone was saying, Jesus, you should go this way because that leper is over there. We can't get near the leper because we're going to get infected by the leper. And if you get near the leper, you'll become a leper. So we've got to stay away from the leper. And, and the most amazing thing about this chapter is that the, the text tells us that Jesus touches a leper. In the ancient world, if you touched an unclean person, you became unclean. And Jesus intentionally lays his hands on an unclean leper, accepting this unclean leper as he was. This is so important. In the ancient world, people understood that sickness was a result of sin. If you were sick, it's because you sinned or someone sinned and you were suffering for it. You were not supposed to touch anyone who was sick, not just because they were contagious or might be contagious, but because they were condemned. They saw sickness as an outright sign of a deeper problem. So that's why Jesus healed people as an outward sign of a deeper healing. They thought sickness was a sign of condemnation. Jesus intentionally touched sick people to show that wasn't the case. He healed people to show that he could heal Sin. The reason Jesus healed people to show was to show that he had power over the sin. They thought that was the root of all of their problems. And of course, it was. It was to make everyone seem as if, give everyone an opportunity to know that their hearts could be healed as their flesh had been healed. Later on in Mark 2, the, the Jesus even says, This isn't about the miracle. This is about what I can do for every one of you to forgive your sins. All these signs were meant to proclaim and point to Jesus as Messiah. He is the greatest miracle. What he can do for our hearts is the greatest miracle. Everyone who saw him do these wonders began to think, if he can heal the outside, what can he do for the inside? Maybe Jesus can actually heal my heart like he healed that leper. Now, I'm not saying that this means we should enjoy pain or welcome problems or pray or not pray for delivery. No one does that, and nowhere in the Bible are we told to, to not seek God's help and seek God's refuge. But I'm saying, in light of how broken our world is, sometimes God leverages suffering for His sovereign will rather than just erasing it. Imagine the world is a car with its alignment off. Its suspension is broken. It's shifted one way or the other. It's hobbling and wobbling as it goes. Now imagine God grabbing the crooked steering wheel steering it in the direction for His glory, holding on to it without power steering, without suspension, without assistance, without cooperation. But the way God grabs the wheel is He grabs us. He, he wraps His arms around us, you and me, holds on to us. He calls us to hold on even if it's a difficult, painful, impossible situation. He gives us strength. And we realize that he is taking us in a direction that we need to go in, that someone else might need us to go in, that his kingdom can benefit from and grow from. The Apostle Paul and many in the early church, Peter, James, and John, they all suffered a great deal. They often would pray and see others healed, but they rarely saw themselves delivered. 
They didn't see this as hypocrisy on God's part. They knew he was still in control. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, We have this treasure, which is this knowledge, this gift of life, in jars of clay. And if you know anything about jars of clay, they break, right? They crack. Don't drop them. Or even if you look at them the wrong way, they sometimes crack. To show that the power, the surpassing power, belongs to God and not of us. To show that God has authority over everything, even if he doesn't use it the way we think he should or the way we would. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So these problems that we face, these difficulties that we face, the challenges that we go through are like crosses. And every time you see a cross, there's a resurrection waiting to happen. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul's saying this is going on in us for the good of those around us. In the same way, Peter and the early church rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer. They didn't doubt God's authority in those situations. They rested in it just as they would if he delivered and healed them. The hope we take away from all these accounts, whether healed or not, delivered or not, is that Jesus absolutely has authority. He showed that much. No matter what we may be facing right now, while we wait and pray for God to move or show us the meaning or make sense of it all, we can rest in these promises. That Jesus has authority over every bit of evil. But rather than getting rid of it all, he's come alongside it. He's come alongside us to remind us we're right where we need to be. We can rest knowing that we are right where we need to be because wherever we are, God is with us and God is using us in our situations for his glory. Maybe you're wondering today, can I trust God? How can I be so sure that I'm right where I need to be? How can I be so sure that God is with me and God is for me? I mean, what if there was somewhere better? What if there was a better situation I could find myself in? And I'm not saying don't try. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm not saying don't dream. I'm just saying, what if we spend so much time wondering if things could, if we could be better off in somebody else's shoes, but we forget that God actually wants to use us where we're at? And the crosses we may bear may be for a purpose that we haven't understood yet. It's easy to look around the world and think, well, things would be better if that happened or things would be better if I was them or in those shoes. Earlier, I mentioned that uh, in our universe, uh, in other galaxies, there are indeed other Goldilocks zones in the universe. And NASA has designated about 15 or 20 planets that are in Goldilocks zones around the universe. Three of the, the top candidates for life one of them is called Proxima Centauri. This is kind of an idea or image of what it would look like. It looks very rocky, kind of sand dunish. Nice sunset. But the problem with Proxima Centauri is that the atmosphere is always being blown away by these intense solar winds. And even if you could land there and there was water there, the atmosphere is always being eroded away. No chance at life. 
There's Galice 60, 667. Again, looks pretty nice, similar to maybe the Grand Canyon. But the problem with Galice 667 is that it does not spin. And only a very small portion of the planet is in light. Most of it's in darkness. And the part that gets the light is so hot, you couldn't breathe. You couldn't survive. There's also a planet called Captain B. It's just a big ice planet. It's in the right spot. It's just made of ice. Discovery after discovery has proven to the experts that there is just one planet that can sustain life. Imperfect as it may be, it's ours. And it's called Earth. See, we have forces working against us, yet a greater force is working for us. We're right where we need to be, broken but still loved. See, God looks at your life, and He sees your good, He sees your bad, He sees your broken, and sometimes He brings change, sometimes He just gives more grace and embraces us and says, I'm using you for so much more than you realize. In light of all that God has created, He focuses so much energy on us. The ancient psalmist said, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? You are mindful of him. How could we ever doubt God or his goodness? No matter where we are, where we are is where God wants us to be and where God has come alongside us. You know, Jesus came to prove that. Showing he has authority over disease and demons, but he also came to show he has authority over death. That's why when it comes to disease and demons, Jesus didn't eliminate them. See, in the ministry of Jesus, God didn't eliminate evil. He placed it on Jesus so that it might not eliminate us. Jesus died under the weight of all darkness to show his true authority and his ability to overcome death and hell. His death and his resurrection remind us that we have nothing to fear and the persistence of brokenness doesn't diminish these promises. They actually emphasize them. You see, the true marvel of our God isn't his swiftness and ability to banish darkness, but his patience and willingness to loyal alongside it, to use it under his authority in order, in order to redeem all of it, in order to redeem all of us. How pure his love must be to give to all, but only for some to receive him, for only some to respond. How awesome this promise is. God alongside and with authority over all brokenness and all of sin. See, for somebody today, we're waiting for God just to make everything better in our lives. We're waiting on God just to d- d- take, take that away and, and make that better and erase that and give us that, but maybe that's not God's will. And after we breathe a little bit, and we realize that God is in control and that God has come alongside us in spite of our faults, in spite of our failures, maybe then we'll be able to see that God actually wants to redeem us and redeem those things around us and use them for his glory. Maybe the, the thing that's waiting, the thing that's keeping the chains from happening is that we're standing back refusing to see that God has been with us the whole time and he wants to use us where we're at. He's just waiting on us to open our eyes, to repent 
and believe. Repent of how we want it to be and believe and trust how God says it should be. Maybe somebody needs to do that today. Maybe your next step in your faith is saying, God, I've been looking at this wrong the whole way. I've been trying to make it the way I want it to be, but God, I've not even considered how you want it to be. Maybe you're, some, you're here today and, and you would just admit that you've never even given God the light of day, thought of the day. You, you've just kind of always been doing your thing and you know God's out there somewhere, but to see how all this has kind of been so focused on what his plan is for you and me, to see how he's given us this opportunity. Maybe, you've, maybe your eyes have been opened and maybe you want to take that first step and say, God, I believe that, you, that, that this is good news. I believe that you have a place for me in your kingdom. I believe your kingdom has come near and I want to come in. Let me pray for you. Father, we hear you today. We hear your word. It's so good. It's so refreshing and it's so awesome to be reminded you are with us. In spite of our failures, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our shortcomings, you are with us, you are for us. Father, a lot of people wait and, 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 and they just, they're waiting on things to change. They're waiting on things to get better. They're waiting on things to improve. But Lord, maybe you're wanting to use those things for something bigger that they can't even imagine. Lord, we're just jars of clay. We crack really easily. And Lord, sometimes that makes us afraid of what might come next. But Lord, when we remember that we're in your hands, that as crooked and off-center as this world is, you still are in control. You steer it in a direction for your glory. Lord, maybe somebody needs to come to you today and they say, God, and just say, God, my, my life is just is broken. I realize how broken it is. And a lot of that's my fault. But God, I'm surrendering to you. I'm surrendering to you and I'm trusting in you. I'm repenting of the way I've been doing things, repenting of the way I've been seeing things, repenting of the way I've been expecting things to be. And I'm trusting, I'm believing that your way is good, your way is better, and that it starts with my faith in Jesus and his way is the only way I want. Father, whatever the need is today, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of everyone that are here today and use us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.